Welcome to the Notes to My Legal Self, AI Insights, where law and AI collide. Get ready to level up your legal game with us. We've got career advice, cutting-edge developments, mind-blowing legal tech, and more. Know someone making waves in the legal AI world? Nominate them, or even nominate yourself. We love courageous souls. And don't forget, we want to hear from you, too. Ask questions, drop comments. Let's build a community of legal superheroes. But here's the deal. We're all about to have a blast. AI may be serious, but we're here to make it fun. So buckle up, get ready to power up, and let's embark on this exciting journey together. Now, let's introduce your fearless host, Olga Mack. Get ready to dive into the awesomeness of Notes to My Legal Self, AI Insights. Let's go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Notes to My Legal Self, AI Insights. This is a place where we discuss anything AI related in the future of law, from executive orders, to what's being built, to how technology works, to drama that has been unfolding for the last week or so. We've been having a front row seat uh, and broad popcorn watching what's happening in open AI. And through various dramatic events, We've seen the CEO leave and CEO return and big companies and small companies taking positions. That has been very interesting. And so I thought it would be great to discuss it. And I couldn't find a better person to discuss it with than Dwayne. Dwayne, welcome to the show. It's good to have you back. You are a repeat guest. So excited to have this conversation. We've been friends for a very long time. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. For those folks who don't know you, please introduce yourself. All right. Yeah. Good morning, Olga. Thanks for having me and having me back on the show. I'm Dwayne Valls. I'm a technology attorney and executive. I've been working in Silicon Valley for uh, many years now. I've most recently was the general counsel of Incitro, a venture-backed biotech that applies machine learning and AI to the process of discovery and drug development. And I've both been a board secretary at Incitro and my former company, Zymergen, and I sit on nonprofit boards. So I have a unique vantage on some of the events of the last week in terms of looking at both the, the nonprofit side and the for-profit side. I'm currently independent. I advise startups and entrepreneurs on law and technology matters and corporate strategy. And I have a couple of entrepreneurial pursuits and stealth mode unfolding. Oh, I love it. And you had a scenic route. Uh, I met you when I was in law school. I was working at Yahoo and you were there as well. So before you become a serial general counsel and now entrepreneur, what else were you doing? I most of my career I was IP counsel, uh, worked at big companies and small companies. When I, I met you at Yahoo, I was the head of patent development, responsible for growing the patent portfolio at Yahoo. I also worked at Google, helped fight the smartphone wars for a number of years on the patent team. And then in 2016, I embarked on my first general counsel position. I love it. So it's fair to say that you 
been in technology for a very long time. It is also fair to say that corporate governance. <laughs> yeah, I've learned a thing or two, particularly over the last seven years, having a bird's eye view on corporate board meetings and the formation of corporate boards on the venture back side. And I've been on nonprofit boards for over a decade. So understand the dynamics there, including some of the complexities of partnering with for-profit organizations, uh, which is one of the points of interest in the open AI situation. Yeah. So let's talk about open AI. What was the sort of original structure and mission of open AI when it started? Yeah, so the, the company was founded in 2015. It was convened by Elon Musk and Sam Altman and a few others, specifically to be a counterweight to what was perceived to be big tech dominance over the development of AI. Companies like, like Google and Meta and Microsoft had been investing heavily in machine learning, at least at that time, using it to improve their services and investing in it in its own right. Visibly, we saw what DeepMind, which had been acquired by Google, was doing in terms of really pushing the boundaries of capable machine learning programs that could do things like figure out protein folding from genes and beat world champions in games like Go. And with some of the developments, the idea was you know, we not only want to develop a counterweight, but we want to make it open, as the name OpenAI suggests. And the nonprofit structure was chosen to align with a mission that says, what we do, we're not going to do for profit. We want to have a public benefit, but we want to aim, shoot for the stars, go for artificial general intelligence, which was perceived to be one of the holy grails of AI development, developing a machine learning platform that could be as smart as human beings and general purpose in its application. So I love the values, counterweight the big guys and being open, all good things. How did Microsoft enter the picture? Which part? Was it the counterweight the big guys or was it about the open? Well, I think what happened is after the, you can start with the best of intentions, but then after you operate for some time, you see what's working and what's not. And while OpenAI was able to raise hundreds of millions of dollars over the first few years, they realized that the amount and the pace of philanthropic giving to the organization wasn't quite predictable. And particularly as the company was making progress on developing platforms like GPT-2, they realized that the amount uh, of resources required to do inference and to really build out these platforms in the way that was needed to fulfill their technical potential, that the resource needs far outstripped what they would be able to get from philanthropic donations alone. So I'm not sure exactly how the Microsoft discussions came about, whether that was initiated by OpenAI or Microsoft took interest based on what they were seeing coming out of the R&D labs of OpenAI. But in 2019, the decision was made to accept a billion dollar investment, 
not donation investment from Microsoft. And it was incident to that, that the corporate structure of the company evolved. All right, let's talk about before and after. Let's talk mm -hmm. about what was the structure before. And then having been on the fundraising side of both philanthropic organizations and profit organizations and specialist startups, Mm -hmm. This is a conversation that I actually have with a lot of entrepreneurs, whether to be nonprofit and essentially ask for money or be for profit and essentially earn money <laughs> and justify investment. Here we have a combination of both worlds. We started with what I think is essentially a nonprofit structure, but then we realized that maybe fundraising is actually for a for-profit company is easier in this case than asking for money. And so we ended up somewhere else. So let's walk through before mm -hmm. and after. Before uh, mid-2019, it was pretty simple and straightforward. There was a single nonprofit entity, a 503C organization, I believe organized in California with a mission, which was really, again, shoot for the stars, develop artificial general intelligence, and uh, also to ensure that it was done safely. That's a commendable goal to not only develop advanced technology, but to be mindful about its impact on society. After the investment, a series of for-profit corporations were created and nestled under the nonprofits, uh, corporations that could receive investment uh, from the likes of Microsoft and later others, an entity that could create employee equity and give equity to, as an incentive to employees. Nonprofits can't really do that. So what you saw was a structure that said, hey, we're going to keep our nonprofit mission, somewhat have our cake and eat it too, create some structures beneath it that would be subordinate to the nonprofit, but still allow all of the amenities and affordances of a typical venture-backed startup to investors and employees. So it is a, a deviation from a standard Delaware C Corp, don't you think? <laughs> sure, yeah. And I, I think at a, to a certain extent, while in my experience, you're more likely to have a C-Corp that creates a nonprofit wing, like while I was at, at Google, there was Google.org and doing good work, a different focus than Google and then Alphabet, but focused on public benefit causes. And it, I think it's a bit easier to nestle a nonprofit under a C-Corp than the other way around, especially as event eventually happened where the business of the C-Corp became so large and the interest in its activities became so outsized relative to the needs and the mission of the nonprofit that I think that sort of becoming bottom heavy where the nonprofit is sitting on top, it's this sort of mission driven, but sort of organization, but has this huge entity underneath it that has billions of investor dollars and the whole world watching and expecting a certain kind of, not just leadership, but product development trajectory. 
that I think became too much, even if between 2015, I'm sorry, between 2019 and, and 2023, that retrofit of creating the corporate structures under the nonprofit may have been okay, but it, it quickly became too much for what was happening. It, it, it couldn't really accommodate all of the activities and the growth trajectory of OpenAI. I'm going to point out a few things. Sam Altman is very well associated with Y Combinator. If you apply to Y Combinator or go to their website, they will tell you to have a Delaware C Corp. And if you don't, they will help you get one. <laughs> the first thing they will do when they accept you there. It's interesting you pointed out the example of Google as nestling a nonprofit under it. I believe, and you correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not sure of the exact timeline, but that happened well after Google raised money, made it fairly big, might have even been after it went public. Uh, that is to say, when you are in the build mode as a startup, it is helpful to have a corporate governance that is simple. I believe that's the reason why you will not find investment in the Valley or anywhere else unless you have something like Delaware C Corp, <laughs> something that is simple, predictable, and everyone knows how it works. <laughs> yeah, it's not that governance of C Corps are intrinsically simple, but as you noted there, it, it's well understood how that's meant to run. And importantly, the structure creates governance mechanisms that help to align the incentives and the interests of different stakeholders. So very typically in a, a C-Corp formed around a venture-backed company, off the top, the lead investors will get board seats, not exclusively, but because they are supporting an enterprise and, and underwriting it. And a lot of Silicon Valley VCs have people who have been there and, and done it. They've been entrepreneurs, they've been founders, they've run startups, they've run bigger companies, they've invested in many companies, they've sat on many boards, they have built up wisdom um, and expertise. And so it's useful. This is the so-called smart money. People who have experience doing this kind of thing, who can advise you on operational matters, on matters of strategy, and it's useful to have people like that on your board. If you have other considerations, you want to make sure that your board is balanced. And so you will start to invite independent directors who can bring potentially a lot of also good business acumen, but more of a disinterested perspective on the running of the company that may not be as tied to an individual investor's own pecuniary interests, which sometimes can run at odds with larger strategic questions facing a company. But the overall point is that the C-Corp and its conventions facilitate having multiple stakeholders have a seat at the table. If you have a member of management, it's not that members of management always keep employee interests in mind. They tend to have aligned interests and they have to keep good people at the company. So they'll advocate for employee interests as well. If you have a CEO or some other executive also sitting on the board. Yeah, no, that's right. And so that, that 
interest alignment is important. And as a former general counsel, and I'm as a former general counsel and CEO, managing that is, is actually a key to success of both the CEO and the general counsel. And depending on the size and complexity of the structure, may become almost a full-time job, if not the full-time job, depending on the milestone events you're going through. Here you have a structure that started out with open counterweight to big tech, with 501 c 3 a completely different structure to C-Corp Delaware that you have in startups, then realization that taking investment would really help to expedite the mission. You end up with a much more complex structure where the 501 nonprofit is sitting on top, as you described it, bottom heavy, <laughs> an interesting term in this context. What else, given where they started and how decisions unfolded, what else could have they done? They could, I guess they could have dismantled the 501c3 and started with a simple, but what, what else could have they done? That's a, that's an interesting question. And I would preface that by saying the through line for all of this is Sam Altman himself. I have to imagine that in 2019, as Microsoft was looking at this, they must be saying, Hey, we're about to commit a billion dollars here. And in this nonprofit construct that you have, even as you propose to evolve it, to create some subsidiary for-profit entities, I'm not going to have a seat at the table at the primary decision-making body. That's the board of directors of the nonprofit. That has to have made him and Satya Nadella and his colleagues at Microsoft somewhat uneasy, but there must have been a lot of trust and understanding with Sam that I'm an interface with you, I'm an interface with the board, and I'm a well-known, trusted quantity, so I can make this work. And apparently it, it did work for four years, but I think the, the ground shifted and the world changed after ChatGPT was launched almost a year ago. And once it was clear that other investors were coming in, Microsoft was going to plow that many more billions into the company and the profile of the company changed. It became a more commercial entity. All of those things point to, you need something different. Having a nonprofit that can't accommodate the interests of all of the key stakeholders providing you fuel and sustenance that wasn't going to be really durable. And uh, so few... basically what you're saying, Dwayne, is that it worked until it didn't. <laughs> it worked until it didn't, but it, in many ways, it was working uneasily. I can imagine between 2019 and 2023, but once things shifted and the decision was made in early 2023 to take on additional investment, it should have been. I think a bit clearer at that time, the need to revisit the structure. So let, let, before we go there, let me mm -hmm. ask you this question. So you think, and I, I think I agree with you, but I think what you're saying is that this is a clunky structure. And it was, even when it worked, it was clunky. <laughs> there yeah. had to have been signs for the CEO, for the investor, for the nonprofit portion of it, that this is, a, an interesting relationship. There is, as you said, 
the alignment probably have been missing for a while before it's all culminated into big termination and events. There must have been signs of this not working. Yeah, I think there there are a number of hindsight's twenty twenty, as they say. But you can follow a number of trails to see how things were working versus not. In in the comments on my LinkedIn post, I included a link to a Substack article by a guy named John Lober, who did the, the work of going through the filings for the nonprofit. There are these required filings, Form 990, that traced over the years the comings and goings of the nonprofit board. And what we see there is that many people left owing to conflicts that it was a bit clubby in terms of the relationships between the different board members. There was a lot of ideological similarity in terms of connections to effective altruism and other nonprofits such as open philanthropy. And there didn't seem to be any sort of internal procedures for term limits or how board selection was done. There may be, but just looking at Lober's analysis, the comings and goings of board members were just a little random. The stepping down because of conflicts, which seems to have impacted so many of the board members over the years, was a big issue. It, it meant that there wasn't a lot of coherency to the board and that a lot of the folks who were involved to protect a pretty big mission, keeping the world safe from renegade AGI and developing safe AGI, it's not clear that a lot of folks who are involved in a lot of different AI pursuits who have to leave over conflicts might have been best suited without any formal structuring of their involvement to run this kind of organization. And so there, there were issues there beforehand. W one of the things about corporate governance is it were, people usually don't think about it. When things are going well, you don't have to think about it, but you attend to it so that things continue to run well, even when there are challenges. It's when there are pressure points that get pushed, that's when you really need coherent and strong corporate governance. And I think that trust in Sam Altman worked for a long time. And that's the thing that caused this awkward structure to not become problematic in a visible way ahead of time. There's a lot of scuttlebutt out there about tensions over adding new board members, that maybe there was an effort to add new board members after Reed Hoffman and a few others stepped down in the spring. And those tensions prevented the board from being repopulated and expanded. It's again, entirely unclear what was happening behind the scenes and what other procedures may have been to provide some more safeguards. But it appears that it was very thin. And a lot of this was just being done on trust and relationships, which is not why you have a structure that can help you. No, that's true. So when you have essentially a benevolent dictator, <laughs> it works until you have complaints. It's interesting that you talk about pain points or pressure points. Mm -hmm. And you feel those pressure points throughout, but at some point, those pressure points become choking points. <laughs> and I think that's what we witnessed. I also find it very interesting when you say clubby, 
That's an interesting term. There are many other terms for that, but let's let's keep it let's keep it clubby because it's it's a cleaner term. It's not judgy term. The reality is that's it's not just Silicon Valley tech. It's board dynamics. They tend to be clubby. <laughs> they mm-hmm. tend to be exclusive. They there have been pressure for boards to have term limits, include diversity, all kinds of things. Sometimes even SEC requires various things and it becomes controversial. But to this day, clubby is the word I would use if I wanted to be gentle. I would use other words if I wanted to be critical. But let's again stay in clubby. Mm-hmm. Clubby is what boards tend to be. So given that they are clubby and Everything is around Sam, who's a benevolent dictator that everyone trusts, who's a figure, iconic figure in, in, in Silicon Valley, in Y Combinator, and now, I would say, the face of AI. Mm-hmm. And you have this interesting structure with a lot of pressure points that finally became a choking point. What led to the choking point? <laughs> Yeah, as you noted, the clubby nature of sort of corporate boards is, it's just a thing. And some of it is you want to get the best people who are connected, have good experience, and it becomes a small set of the the very best folks who have established experience. There's still a lot of dynamics there, which can exclude perfectly good folks and include some of the usual suspects over and over again. But that is what it is. But it's because, precisely because you will have those dynamics, part of what you're meant to safeguard against are conflicts of interest, self-dealing, some of the other dynamics that we know through many years of litigation and sort of writing, scholarly writing about how these things can play out. That's exactly why you have not just certain structures, that help to align incentives and to prevent conflicts of interest from arising, but you create procedures to help when conflicts or issues arise, you create procedures so they can be addressed in an orderly way. And for instance, one of the things that investors do when they invest in a venture-backed company and join their boards is they'll work out in the deal documents certain preferences, certain investor rights, certain voting rights, you have a chance to deliberate and work those things through in a more coherent and detailed way, whereas those things don't always happen at the nonprofit level. And again, it's not clear that what kind of sophistication was built into the decision-making and conflict resolution procedures of OpenAI Inc., the nonprofit. (laughs) But then nonprofits usually take donations as opposed to investments. So they're not quiet. They're conducting business differently. So given, let's just use a Silicon Valley term, there was a pivot. <laughs> there was a pivot from nonprofit to, which is donation, philanthropy-driven world, to for-profit investment type of world that ended up with a structure that led to lots of pressure points coming and going various directors and 
and probably you know what I would describe using the right foot describes the left ear where you can do it with the left hand much easier type of experience. What else could they could they done? Do, do you think that at that time when they took investment, they should have essentially separated the nonprofit for profit? Uh, or what you you also mentioned procedures, which is another way to solve that. If you were to look at this sort of range of infinite options and to group them and prioritize them, what would you, in your experience, in your kind of um, legal corporate governance on both for-profit and non-profit companies, what would you recommend? There are a couple of things that could have been done. Let's say it was too delicate to do away with the nonprofit or really do away with that being the, at the top of the corporate structure, then at minimum, you could do things like create committees that could include some of the investors, make sure that you have a, a mechanism to hear from your investors, have the interests in mind and have that not be fully weighted to the nonprofit decision-making, but at least have some way of factoring in investor interests and concerns. That's one. Two, you could have amended the mission of the nonprofit so that it embraced this new reality, right? ChatGPT was released as a R&D beta, right? They were doing research on consumer interactions with AIs. They were still an R&D company. Once you decided to um, make a product out of it, and that was clear, once you release GPT-4 and you start charging subscription fees for it, and you have enterprise, which your company already did, they had enterprise accounts where you can have API access to some of their models, then that commercial initiative, which became huge, would suggest that you don't just focus your mission on artificial general intelligence, which was a pipe dream. It still is. Some people think, oh, it's near. Some people are like at least 10 years. Some people don't think it's going to happen. It's an uncertain and somewhat nebulous goal, which is fine to have a mission around it, but it's clear you need to enlarge your mission to also embrace the commercial activities if you can't do that as a nonprofit, then you're straining the nonprofit structure, right? Because there's the two facets of it that you noted. There are some of the constraints around what kind of money you can receive, how you can spend money, and some of the governance dynamics. But there's also this idea that your mission has to be, first and foremost, the public or social benefit focus has to be of a certain kind. And okay, so, 501c3 is a tax treatment. So it is a tax treatment. Yep. That's where it comes from. Mm -hmm. So I, I was a GC of a nonprofit as well. And it, it's the most valuable thing to have at a nonprofit. And everything you do is around protecting that IRS status. And that's why you conduct yourself and put procedures in place to protect it's some it's important thing that's how you fundraise mm -hmm. that's how your donors get deductions <laughs> that's how you can make a compelling argument 
for them to take their right hand, put it in their right pocket, pull out a checkbook and write a check. If you don't have that, that's a challenge in your, you know, campaign, your capital campaign. So completely different way to, to make money uh, at a startup. Again, I've been a general counsel of one too and my CEO. Mm -hmm. Different song and dance all together. And normally at a nonprofit, you don't have subscription services. I, I understand why Mr. Problem ended up with it because that's a very classic thing that you end up running a for-profit startup mm -hmm. in technology or a company. But at some point, there should have been realization that we have changed. We have graduated to something else. And it's interesting that among various things they could have done from closing the 501c3 to, to having very, if it's so delicate, changing various procedures in place, that was not done. Why do you think that was the case? Again, it, it could say Sam Altman had a lot on his plate this year. So perhaps he could be forgiven for not attending to everything that potentially could have used some additional engagement. But there are also reports that once Reed Hoffman and a few of the others stepped down, three people stepped off the board in the early part of this year. There are some reports suggesting that there were efforts to replace those people and perhaps expand the board even more, but there were disagreements at the board level about how to do that. And it could be that notwithstanding Sam Altman's best efforts, not enough was done soon enough, or it could be that it was... I agree with you. It, 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 at some point, it, it's actually really hard to undo what's created. It's easy to create it when you have nothing. <laughs> because there's mm -hmm. so little at stake. But at the point you are successful in the public eye, it's actually really, even if you have that realization, and even if you want to do this, any change will change the status quo and therefore becomes a political adventure. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so you're gonna have folks who put sticks in your will, so to speak. Coming to the end, I have a few more questions. I wanna, I do wanna end with, what do you think of where we are today and how it influenced the AI perception and stuff like that? But I also want to, because we talk about corporate governance, that's not the only unusual thing about open. There are actually plenty of unusual things about open AI, including, for example, and this is me again come into misalignment of interest. Sam Altman, I don't believe, has a stake in the company that you would expect of the CEO, the founding CEO of, of, of a company, of a hyper-growth company. So he his interests are very different from an average CEO of a growing startup. Do you think that might have contributed to what we've seen? I don't think so. I, I think having a, a significant enough interest in an enterprise is an important incentive for performance and alignment with the enterprise's objectives. In this case, Sam Altman may not have had equity in the company, but certainly the reputational value, his influence, his ability to raise money for other companies, all things that we know he's been doing 
were greatly enhanced by his position as the CEO and a leading uh, of OpenAI and a leading ambassador of the AI industry generally. So I don't believe that he necessarily needed equity. He's already wealthy to have a sufficient sort of stake in the company and the outcomes of the company. There was plenty there for him to remain focused and there still is, right? So I don't think that is the end all and be all when there are other ways in which you share in the outcomes of the company and there's plenty of value for you on the table for remaining with the company and attending to its success. Yeah, I can see that. And yet I wonder when you are not worried about losing your job <laughs> that you may behave differently and and call shots. And not necessarily and you I, I I do think that interactions with the board can be colored by the fact whether CEO is worried to lose his job or not. Um, yeah, that has nothing to do with his that record. would affect, for example, his vesting schedule. That's an easier way mm-hmm. to put a, this, I've been the CEO, I've been put on the leash by the board. It's called the vesting schedule. And you become suddenly a lot more respectful to folks if, sure, he is wealthy, but at some point, depending how much money at stake, that may alter his behavior. And I think you may have a slightly different point of view if you're not worried being fired precisely because you don't have a whole lot of stakes in the company and you can start another one which I think that was the talk of town. But I also agree with you that he he's a well-known figure, has a reputation on the line. But it's an unusual thing that does create alignment with the CEO and with the board when folks have a predictable structure and their interests, they they're working together toward the same goal. Another, for example, unusual thing about the startup is that it is a fairly early stage startup in many ways, yet because of the public scrutiny for AI, including the testimonies in Congress and all kinds of stuff, it, this startup found itself in the scrutiny of public eye much sooner than most startups do. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that unusual thing? First of all, it's eight years old, so it's not quite a baby <laughs> in the woods. But that being said, again, going from, uh, I think, maybe less than 100 employees or less than 200 um, last year to almost 800 a year later, going from having next to nothing in terms of revenues to being on track for an annual run rate of a billion dollars, going from having a value of maybe a few hundred million dollars to what would have been, and we'll see, uh, close to 90 billion in less than a year, that is, that's head spinning. doesn't matter how old you are as an enterprise, if that amount of change, that amount of overnight success hits you when you're relatively small and you weren't really planning for it, that's going to be disruptive. So that's the sort of a black swan type of <laughs> moment that hit OpenAI and I think any other company, however old or mature, might be disrupted in many ways if that amount of growth and success hit it that quickly. I think it put a little bit more pressure on the pressure points. <laughs> of course, mo- most definitely. 
So maybe last question, maybe mm -hmm. two last questions. It was an intense one week. We, I've been checking the news and talking to my friends quite a lot this week, read your article, which is, which inspired this conversation. I'm doing a lot of research. Two questions somewhat related. What impact will it have on perception of AI, regulation of AI? One question. And question number two, for builders, for folks who are building, what should they learn from it? Yes, I think that first question, certainly there's some upsides and some downsides. I, I think starting with the downsides, people are going to question who's really running these companies. And you can have a, a fancy, nice sounding slogan or mission statement, but at the end of the day, how stable are you? How aligned are you behind the scenes? If we can't trust you to govern yourself properly, how can we potentially trust you with the fate of humankind? <laughs> Some of those questions I just like the small question you posed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's yeah. If you can't conduct potentially a serious decision, but if you can't set yourselves up to deal with these challenges at the corporate governance level smoothly and professionally, then how else are we meant to trust you to uh, do the right thing when it comes to existential threats and all of the things that you yourself say we? Need to be concerned about. I think that's a question for the industry and, and not just for um, open AI, but that's one of the things that gets opened up. I think open AI now on the positive side has a tremendous opportunity to say, okay, this wasn't awesome. And we're addressing the parts of it that failed us all. And now we have an opportunity to really be thoughtful about what this should look like going forward and to really make a robust entity that can help us pursue our ambitions, which are outsized and just pretty tremendous. I think that remains to be seen how they go about this. I just don't see as much as Sachin Nadella wants to have the right kind of input and in decision-making. I just don't see the nonprofit structure accommodating that they could do things like create a decision board at the for-profit company level, the one that actually receives investments. There are a number of things they can do. My suspicion, though, is that they'd be best served by a public benefit corporation, some structure along the lines of what Anthropic uh, has done, which was deliberative. It was based on not being satisfied with the open AI structure. And as I wrote about in the article, I think does embody some good ways of harmonizing diverse interests and being able to serve a longer term mission with short term commercial goals in one entity in a more coherent and simplified way. No pressure, open AI. You must do the right thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I am with you. I do think that there's just a lot of light on that today and they have to do the right thing this has been a great conversation corporate governance is increasingly important we've seen it to be very important in web3 we're seeing it to be very important in ai it has always been important and you and i know that as former general counsel and and somebody's who've been with startup and technology now for a long time this is where you spend a lot of your time 
mm -hmm. uh, trying to make sure that stars align and, and things happen the way that folks plan and want them to happen. Thank you so much for this great conversation. Thank you for, as always, sharing your thoughtful insights. If folks remember nothing else, because we have covered a lot of ground, somewhere between for-profit and non-profit and drama-worthy events, what is the one thing you want folks to take away from this conversation? Yeah, and I think you'd previously asked about the takeaways for startup founders. I think there's, again, you have to think about not only when things are going well, who do you want to have around you helping to lead your org, but when things break down, what safety nets do you have in place? And things do break down even between investors, right? Their interests can diverge. And so just it's worth spending the time to be thoughtful in the AI space. If you're really taking big swings and you're doing foundation models, you want to have an industry transforming platform then thinking about these issues of a broader set of stakeholders, not just employees and investors, but different members of the public, thinking about your security obligations, national security obligations. There are a lot of different moving parts around large-scale AI organizations, and it's incumbent to really work with good attorneys and good advisors who have been around the block, talk to people from different industry segments, can consider carefully who you want on your board besides investors and insiders. Those are the things that I think merit a lot of attention going forward. I love that. You ended perfectly. Thank you so much, Dwayne. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining. See you next time. And that brings us to the end of another thrilling episode on the Notes to My Legal Self AI Insights. We had a fantastic time exploring the fascinating intersection of law and AI with you. But hold on tight because the adventure doesn't stop here. Stay connected with us on social media to continue the conversation, share your thoughts, and be part of our incredible community of legal enthusiasts. Together, we can inspire, learn, and make a real impact on the world of law and AI. If you enjoyed today's episode, we encourage you to share it with your friends, colleagues, and anyone else who could benefit from the exciting insights we discussed. Let's spread the knowledge and enthusiasm far and wide.